Welcome to the Playbook for Amazon podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Lieber, and the goal of this podcast is to share what's working today that's helping my company, Turnkey Product Management, sell over eight figures per year on Amazon for our clients. We will share with you the actionable steps, systems, and playbook that you can plug into your business to boost your sales on Amazon. Let's go. Hello, and welcome to the Playbook for Amazon podcast brought to you by Turnkey Product Management. My name is Brad Enright. I am the Director of Client Partnerships here at Turnkey Product Management. And in honor of today being April 3rd and the day of the NCAA Men's Basketball National Championship game and the last game ever for broadcaster Jim Nance, I want to say to everyone, hello friends. We're excited to be here with you guys today. We have a really interesting topic. We're going to be talking about the legal components of Amazon with the Amazon suspension lawyer, Leo Weisberg will be joining us today to talk about all the legal issues around Amazon and Amazon selling. Leo, thanks for being here. How are, how are you today? Brad, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. I love doing these podcasts. I love talking to people that we work with that help our clients with any issue that they have, be it legal, be it shipping, manufacturing, whatever it is. And we're always excited to learn more about what it is that you do to just spread more information and educate people that are selling on Amazon, whether you're one of our clients or whether you are not. So just a quick background on you, Leo. Your company is based, Amazon Suspension Lawyer, you're based in San Diego. You've been in the business now for five years. And I've got a whole set of questions here to go through and kind of pick your brain and give all the people out there that are selling on Amazon, you know, the pitfalls and the things to look for when it comes to sort of any legal problem that they may encounter. So let's just get right to it. Yeah, let's jump in. So this is a first question. It's got a few parts to it. In your experience, what are the most common legal issues that, you know, any Amazon seller is encountering, you know, day in, day out, week to week, month to month? Well, there are quite a few. And as you know, Amazon is kind of constantly evolving. So issues that were issues yesterday may not be issues today and probably right. won't be issues tomorrow. I think that the best place to, to start is, generally speaking, sellers have this inclination to, you know, I've got a product. I'm excited. I'm going to start selling it. I'm going to go open up my Amazon account and and, and throw it up for sale. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really a, a, a mistake. I think that one thing that sellers should always do before even opening an account or certainly before listing a product for sale is I think that they really should go and review Amazon's terms of use. And the way Amazon operates is that when you create a seller account, you agree to operate by their terms of use. Their terms of use are kind of in, in two separate components. The first one is called the business solutions agreement, and that acts as a seller's contract with Amazon. And that contract, while extremely boring, I think it's really an important read because it tells a seller, you know, what are your obligations as a seller to Amazon? What are your obligations as a seller to the consuming public? And then what are Amazon's, you know, rights and and obligations towards you as a seller what can they do what can't they do what can you do what can't you do 
you know, what are the recourses for disputes, so on and so forth. So that's really the first place to look. And the second place that sellers should really go is review the selling policies and the seller code of conduct. The, the seller code of conduct is it's pretty straightforward, but it essentially tells sellers, okay, here are kind of the high level ground rules that you need to abide by when you agree to use the platform. You know, don't divulge customer information, you know, act fairly at all times, things like that. Very common sense right. stuff. Right. But then the selling policies of which there are many, those really need to be looked at because those contain a lot of important information, such as, you know, your, your obligations for performance, shipping on time. You know, if you're going to be fulfilling by yourself, you need to know, you know, how quickly do you have to ship an order? How quickly do you have to provide tracking to the client or the customer? You know, what percentage of your orders can, can have, a, you know, some type of an issue as a defective product or poor customer service. There are all sorts of metrics sellers have to comply by. And there are other policies, for example, a restricted product policy, which has a list of products that can't even be sold on Amazon. But there are products that require pre-approval or categories that require pre-approval from Amazon to sell. There's products that require some type of certification. You know, if you're selling a product that's to be consumed by the public, it's entirely possible you need to get certification from the FDA. So really before... Certainly before listing a product, I, I think sellers really need to take the time to review the, the business solutions agreement and, and the selling policies and code of conduct to make sure they understand what's required of them as a seller. That's kind of like a really high overview. There are, of course, specific issues that sellers encounter every day. One of the most common ones that I've seen, certainly post-COVID, is this passive income schemes that have popped up where all sorts of companies are offering drop shipping services where you, you'll create an Amazon account, they'll manage it for you, they'll find products to sell on your behalf, and then they'll take your, you know, a, a chunk of your revenue. And they claim that this is a great way of making passive income because you never have to touch inventory. And an order comes in, they'll use virtual assistants to go and place that order with Target or Walmart or various other retailers. The product is not shipped directly to the consumer. There's no logistical issues. Fortunately, Things like that are prohibited on Amazon. There's a drop shipping policy which says you have to be the seller of record. Your name has to be on the packaging. You have to accept customer returns. You can't use third-party, you know, boxes like a product can't arrive in a Walmart box. So, you know, I think before jumping into business models like that, sellers really do need to do their due diligence. And, and, and you know, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Um, I think the days of making easy, quick money on Amazon are largely gone. You have to sort of stamp, you, you got to start from the ground up and, and really build a sustainable business. And it's not a part-time job either. I think it's, if you're going to sell on Amazon, you need to commit the time and the resources to educate yourself and, and be in compliance and remain in compliance. So that's really important, not engaging in a business practice or a business model that just is not compatible on Amazon. And unfortunately, a lot of my clients are folks who've been caught up in these types of schemes. And they're caught between a rock and a hard place because they, through, you know, no real fault of their own other than their, their failure to do due diligence, now have an Amazon account that can't be used to sell and Amazon's withholding their money. And so they don't know what to do, how to get that money out. And so we have to, you know, engage Amazon's legal team to, to recover those funds. So that's a that's a big issue that's, that's coming up these days. Um, could some of those problems that you've talked about or some of the problems that your current clients have, could they have been avoided 
if they had reviewed the terms of service and reviewed and known the seller code of conduct and you know adhered to that or at least had that in their minds could some of these problems been avoided or is there just too much there to remember you know when you're trying to start a business on top of everything else well they certainly could have been avoided i think that if somebody takes the time to and you, it requires time. I mean, the Amazon's policies are fast, so you can't sure. do it in an hour. Yeah. But if somebody took the time to peruse through all the policies and they came across the, the drop shipping policy, it is pretty straightforward. It says what you can and cannot do. And I think that if somebody took the time to read it, they would realize, you know, this drop shipping scheme is not viable. Unfortunately, most, you know, most sellers probably don't do sufficient due diligence. They rely on the sales pitch that they get from these service providers who tell them, hey, don't worry about it, we'll manage your account. If it gets deactivated, we'll get you reinstated. And the reality is these service providers, they they charge pretty large lump sum fees up front, and that's really what they're in it for. Most of their service contracts have a, you know, guarantee of success is not provided. There's a limitation of liability provisions. So they essentially try to, you know, wipe their hands from any failures from the from the store not being able to really get up off the ground and there's been a lot of litigation on this issue the federal trade commission came down hard on a couple on a couple service providers i think it was last year so i i think that there's a big crackdown coming on that but you know unfortunately there's still a lot of people who are getting cut up in these schemes so you know, anytime you get involved in a in an investment opportunity, I think you really got to do that due diligence before before signing the check. Oh. Got it, got it. One last part to this in little common legal issues. What are some issues that a seller would encounter <clears throat> that they would most likely be fine handling on their own, and what are issues where you would recommend them? Hey, you need to get someone that's an expert in the legalities of Amazon to handle for you. Like the old saying, you know, the person that represents themselves has a fool for a client. When would that partake here? When would someone want to stop being a fool and get you know, an actual attorney on their side to help them resolve an issue with their Amazon account? So I think for minor issues, you know, if, if you're if you're reselling a product and Amazon comes to you and says, hey, we want to verify the, the source or the authenticity of your goods, and they ask you for your invoices, your receipts, or contract with your suppliers, and assuming you have that stuff, you know, I think that's something a seller can do by themselves. Just upload that, and hopefully that's it. Anything really beyond that, I mean, I think if a seller is confused why Amazon has taken a particular action, if an account's been suspended or deactivated, then those are certainly times where I think you want to get professional help because in my experience, most sellers are neophyte. They don't take the time to review the, the, the business solutions agreement, the policies. They don't know what Amazon's looking for as part of an appeal or a plan of action. Yeah. And their natural sort of you know, reaction is let me just, you know, write something and submit it and hope that it works. And in in my experience, that's usually, that'll cause more harm than good. And in many cases, you know, sellers will either admit to doing something wrong when they shouldn't because they just want to get their privileges back. And Amazon will use that against you. And a lot of times I've had people come to me and I'll review their prior appeals and I'll say, what you know, what'd you do? You just admitted to violating a policy. You admitted to engaging in 
you know, fraudulent or deceptive business practices. Your account can never be recovered. Amazon's going to hold your money in perpetuity. I mean, you just kind of screwed the pooch. So there are, of course, instances like that where, you know, accounts shut down. You really do want to get professional help. And then, of course, there are times where a seller will encounter an actual legal issue. And one of the most common ones that I'm seeing these days is, is the sort of receipt of intellectual property complaints, either by brands themselves or, or you know, law firms or enforcement companies acting on behalf of brands. Because a lot of, you know, a lot of folks go to China to either find, uh, you know, goods because they're manu- you know, the cost of goods is so low. You can get product sure. manufactured for cheap. And they don't take the time to, again, going back to due diligence, they don't take the time to uh, find out whether they're reselling a product that's already patented here in the U.S. And so, you know, one thing I've seen lately is is a company based out of Los Angeles called PowerPress. They have a piece of fitness equipment that's essentially, you know, it's a part of a home gym. It's good for things like push-ups and pull-ups and whatnot. And there are a lot of counterfeit sort of knockoffs being manufactured in China and folks are buying them and reselling them on Amazon. And I've seen a lot of those patent infringement complaints on Amazon. And, you know, folks will reach out to me and say, hey, look, I mean, this is not the same product. I'm getting this patent infringement complaint. What do I do? And unfortunately for those people, it's, you know, you didn't take the time to see if you're selling something that's already been patented here in the U.S. And you certainly don't want to go it alone with respect to Amazon as part of an appeal and you certainly don't want to go it alone if lawyers are getting involved because some of the bigger brands will either send cease or desists you know i also have cases where you know lawyers will file infringement lawsuits they'll obtain injunctions and temporary restraining orders they'll send those to amazon and then amazon by law has to suspend seller accounts and freeze assets and so if that's an issue that, that that pops up. You definitely need to get a lawyer involved to, to extricate you from that situation, you know, as quickly and efficiently as possible because litigation is, is expensive. And sure. most sellers don't have those kinds of resources, whether it's to satisfy judgment or whether it's for you know protracted litigation. Most people just don't have those kind of resources. And to be honest, you know, if you're reselling a product, I don't think the cost and benefit is there. It doesn't make sense for you to spend thousands and thousands of dollars in legal fees where you're never going to get that money back from just reselling a product anyway. Got it. That makes sense. Following that same line about (coughs) Amazon, you get something from Amazon about your account and those types of things. And so they request certain documentation or whatever it is. You know, we know that Amazon, like any big tech company these days, they're hard to communicate with. It's hard to get somebody on the phone. It's hard to get a reply to an email in a prompt fashion. What types of recommendations can you make for the best ways to communicate with with Amazon if you do have a suspended listing or an ASIN taken down? What have you seen that sellers can do, steps they can take to have faster, more efficient communication with Amazon to get something resolved? So I think when you, you know, when a seller receives a, a, a notice from Amazon, whether it's a notice for suppressing a particular ASIN, whether it's a notice asking for additional information or documentation, or even if it's a notice saying, hey, we're suspending your account, Amazon almost always cites the policy or policies that form the basis of the decision. So I think the best place to start is to go look at that policy and, and read through with the fine tooth comb to see 
you know, what is required of a seller under that policy. And if you can figure that out, then you can obviously tie it back into what you are doing as a seller and figure out, okay, what did I do that violated this particular policy? You know, if Amazon's asking for evidence, can you get that evidence? You know, is it a document you can, you know, that you can create yourself? Is it a document you got to get from somebody else, like a supplier? That's all pretty straightforward. And then when you're going to communicate with Amazon, the trick is to be clear and concise with them because you know that the individual who's reviewing your submissions is probably reviewing thousands of them per day. And unlikely that they're going to give you more than 30 seconds of their attention span. So you got to be clear and concise. You know, I think it's a mistake to admit to doing something wrong if you haven't done something wrong, because that will absolutely be used against you in the event you got to start escalating matters. And, you know, if you can't really get a straightforward response from Amazon or if you're getting the same automated response back, I do think at that point, it's not a bad idea to seek out professional help, you know, whether it's myself or somebody else in the industry. I I think most legitimate, whether it's law firms or consulting companies, will provide you sort of an initial assessment and and tell you, okay, well, here's what you were doing wrong. Here's what you need to get, you know, and, and from there, you can develop a pretty good resolution strategy. You know, unfortunately, there's no proverbial gun you can put to Amazon's head to either get them to respond faster or respond in a manner that's that's helpful. As a matter of fact, I think Amazon's responses are generally not helpful. They put the onus on the seller to figure out, you know, what you did wrong. And, and you need to, as the seller, you need to show Amazon what you're doing to stop that problem. And again, most sellers are neophyte and don't really know how to navigate that which is why I almost always tell, you know, my clients or even prospective clients is if you're not 100% sure what you're doing, stop because you're probably going to make it worse and to the point where you may get yourself in a situation where your account will no longer be recoverable. So, you know, quick and concise is the best way to communicate with them, but you know, if you're getting stonewalled by them at some point, get out. There's there's no reason to try and go down that foxhole with them. Got it. Talk about what, depending on how you, the research that you read and some things that go on. Like any marketplace, Amazon, even though it's e-commerce, is a very competitive space. A lot of people selling a lot of the same products. Talk about, you know, so people will do things to gain a competitive advantage. Sometimes those practices are a little unsavory. Sometimes they're well above board. What are some unsavory things that you've seen people do to get a product to gain an advantage by getting a product removed or something suspended talk about some of the things that you've seen so the people that are listening can you know keep an eye out for somebody if they come across something or they receive what could maybe be a a false letter of uh, i can't think of now the word is escaping me i'm losing my train of thought you know what i'm talking about when you get a cease and desist or something like that there we go i thought about it long enough it came Yeah, so again, I think the most common issue here is either bogus infringement complaints by either brands or, you know, agents acting on behalf of brands, whether it's law firms or brand enforcement companies. And that can kind of come in in several ways, you know, several forms. One is obviously the abuse of Amazon's brand registry program. The second one is abuse of Amazon's reporting infringement mechanism. You know, one is available to sellers who have an actual brand or trademark with the USPTO have enrolled in the brand registry program. Mm -hmm. The other one's available to anybody. And a lot of times, and this also, a lot of these things go back to, to due diligence, but most sellers, whether it's, 
you know, if you're the seller who's selling or you're a seller who's trying to, you know, complain against somebody else. Most people don't understand, you know, how intellectual property law works in the U.S. There's a, there's a misconception out there that if you have a trademark, that nobody can sell your stuff. And that's simply not true. As a matter of fact, trademarks are designed to protect consumers, not necessarily protect the brand. The purpose of a trademark is that when a consumer buys Nike, Lego, Disney, whatever the case may be, they know they're getting a genuine product. The law is pretty clear, and there are legal concepts out there, like the first sale doctrine, for example, that permit the resale of genuine and unmodified goods. Um, that's not infringement. You're allowed to resell somebody else's stuff unless you've you know, modified it or tampered with it. And there are, of course, exceptions like the quality control exception. But for the most part, reselling somebody else's stuff is, is totally legitimate and is not grounds for infringement. So you see a lot of that where brands, unfortunately, you know, they realize, you know, hey, we've got this group of authorized distributors or resellers who are now selling our stuff on Amazon. We could be selling on Amazon ourselves. So why don't we start going and taking everybody else down? And that's, you know, certainly anti-competitive, baseless, you know, complaint or infringement complaints. And that can, again, come through brand registry, can come through cease and desists. I mean, people can also file lawsuits. And unfortunately, it's, again, the cost-benefit analysis has to come into play there. Is it worth it for you as a seller to fight back? Or are there other products or other ways you can, you know, perhaps make some money where you don't have to get involved with litigation? But certainly these bogus IP complaints are, are you know, pretty frequent and common. There's also other ways that, that brands are getting at least trying to go after competitors. For example, they will enlist friends or family to buy a competitor's product and then put negative reviews or then have like mass returns and saying, oh, it's a counterfeit product, it's a defective product, the quality's not good. And, you know, that's again, that's not allowed under Amazon policy. You can't, you can't do that. You can't, you can't generate positive reviews for yourself by enlisting friends or family to, to, to buy a product, leave a review, and you can't do the opposite. You can't try and get negative reviews for your competitors. So those are probably the most common ways that, you know, that, that sellers are going after one another in the marketplace. And, you know, again, I think if you're the victim of one of these sort of abusive schemes, that you should always reach out to, you know, to somebody to get you know, professional help. Because a lot of times sellers will think, oh, shoot, I'm reselling somebody else's product. I'm infringing. And the reality is you're not. You know, if you're reselling something, you're that's totally fair game. Following up along that, talking about resellers and those types of things, how it's not illegal. Talk about the importance of the listing of your product and making sure that it's it's accurate. My research shows me that a lot of the problems that people have stem from or the success or the lack of success that a product has is problems with their listings, whether it's just not described properly so it doesn't appeal to the customer, or again, if it's too well done, people may see it as a replication or a stealing of IP. So talk about just the accuracy of listings and how important that is to the success, the failure, and ultimately the protection of your of your Amazon seller account. Yeah, so look, you always, I think as a seller, certainly if you have your own brand, you know, if you're reselling somebody else's product, you generally don't control the, the actual listing on Amazon. You're usually just piggybacking on it. So the accuracy there is probably not as big of an issue. 
But if you have your own brand, I mean, you always want to have the most accurate. I think you always you want to have the most accurate detailed page possible, because at the end of the day, you want to tell your customers what your product is, you know, what it does, what are the features and specs and so on and so forth. Because the last thing you want is the lack of of information about your product being the reason why you've got a lot of negative feedback from customers or excessive returns. Because a lot of that can impact your performance metrics. And poor performance performance metrics can have you know tons of negative ramifications, mm-hmm. uh, warnings from Amazon, you know, sus- suspension of accounts, um, inability to use buy box, for example, which is really important for a lot of people, especially come holiday time. So you really do want to have a really accurate um, detail page, and at the end of the day, I think that's also important because having a, a detailed listing can set you apart from competitors. Because most of the time, you know, there are multiple products competing for the same sort of market, you know, market share. Mm-hmm. And so frequently the one who's got the best and most descriptive detail page may be the one that's going to do the best. So your sales rankings there is, is really important. Unfortunately, you know, there's always a flip side to, to every coin. And what I've seen over the years is sometimes being over descriptive or using certain keywords unintentionally can trigger Amazon's algorithms. And so that can result in a product being flagged for you know violating a particular policy, which then results in suppression of that listing. And then once a listing becomes suppressed, sometimes getting it reinstated can be a colossal pain because you know Amazon will ask you for all sorts of documentation. It may not even exist. You may be unable to get it. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I've I've had cases over the years where Amazon's come back and said, "Hey, we want you know." We want to see ISO 9000 certification. We, we, want, we want to see certification from the FDA because it's a supplement. Amazon doesn't know that FDA doesn't you know, issue certifications for supplements. Mm-hmm. So you really do need to be there. There's a fine line there in terms of being you know, sufficiently descriptive so people know what they're buying, but also being careful about putting in certain keywords that'll trigger those you know, bots, as people call them where Amazon can can suppress that because it, they, I don't know, most sellers probably don't know, but much of what Amazon does is by algorithm. It's yeah. pretty rare that there's a person sitting behind a desk somewhere, you know, looking through a listing or an account and trying to find some kind of violation. Almost everything is done by algorithm. So you got to be careful there. And of course, you know, the last thing I'll say is sometimes having too much information on your detail page can cause your competitors to s- steal your content. Yeah. And of course, you can always go after them for copyright infringement, things like that. But, you know, it, it is to a certain extent like the cost of doing business. Gotcha, gotcha. Imitation so, is the most sincere form of flattery, as they say. Exactly. Yeah. No. It's, it's there's you know positives and negatives, like you said. There's two sides in all those coins. You know, traditionally, Amazon is pro-consumer, 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 and you can trace that value back to the very first investor letter that Jeff Bezos wrote to his shareholders in 1997. With that being said, what can sellers do to stay on the good side of Amazon or not be caught in those Amazon crosshairs because they are so consumer friendly or pro-consumer? What can, what can sellers do to you know, stay on the good side? 
Yeah, I think there are a couple things sellers can do. I mean, you have to remember that Amazon is, again, super pro-consumer. That'll never change, I don't think. No. And, and, you know, if you've been selling on Amazon long enough, I mean, you'll get a customer return and they'll just, you know, for some silly reason, and Amazon will always issue it. So they're just, you can't do anything about that. Generally speaking, I think sellers can focus on a couple things. Number one, you, you really want to have good customer service. You know, if a if a buyer reaches out to you with a concern, you want to address that promptly. If they want a refund, odds are you're just better off issuing it and not having to deal with anything after the fact, like an A to Z claim. Because, you know, too many A to Z claims will have an impact on your performance and then that can lead to warnings and deactivation. So you really don't want to go down that road. I think you want to do everything possible to have a really positive customer experience. And that starts with obviously shipping on time but also starts with having really, you know, like good product packaging. Make sure that the product is, is packaged in a safe manner, that it's not going to arrive damaged. You know, and, and to the extent that if a seller is obviously doing their own logistics, there are things you can do from a packaging perspective. I mean, if you're using FBA, some of those things are beyond your control, obviously. But, you know, again, do everything you can to have a really positive customer experience. You really want to have good post-purchase customer support and, and you know, tech support if you have a, a tech product. At the end of the day, I think you, you want to build a brand that consumers can trust. That'll be reflected in, in reviews and ultimately sales ranking. So the better the reviews, the better your sales ranking, the more sales you're going to get. You know, I, I wouldn't necessarily, you know, I, I wouldn't be afraid to necessarily push back to, to a buyer if it's warranted. Especially if you have the evidence that, that somebody's just making a bogus, you know, claim. And I'll, right. I'll share a, you know, I'll share a story that I, that I had just last week with a client who sells different types of cocoa butter. And she had a client who over an eight month period made like five or six purchases of the same product. And because it's a food product, there are limitations on refunds and returns. I think Amazon's pretty strict on food products. You can't always return them and get a refund. And so in this particular case, you know, my client gets a call or an email from, you know, distressed buyer saying, hey, you know, my wife ordered this and we don't need it. Can you issue a return? And, and my my client came back and said, look, no, I can't. You know, Amazon's not going to let me. This product's not eligible for a return. Sorry. The customer then calls Amazon and says, oh, this product's expired. I peeled the label off. I don't trust the safety of this product. And, you know, my client pushed back and she said, hey, look, here's the story. This person bought this, uh, you know, this is the fifth or sixth reorder. They didn't seem to have an issue with the expiration date the last five or six times. What's the issue now? And so if you push back in those kinds of cases, Amazon, in, the, in this case, actually sided with my client. Now, those stories are probably few and far between. Yeah. But uh, there are instances. I mean, I think that, you know, sometimes, again, cost of doing business. You don't want to just, you know, just deal with headaches. But if you think you're you're being treated unfairly by a, by a buyer, I think you, and you've got the proof then don't be afraid to necessarily push back. But again, just make sure you've got the proof before you do it. Because, you yeah. know, 99 out of 100 times, Amazon will side with the buyer. And that leads to our final question here. Talk about the Amazon arbitration process. If you do have the evidence and you do have an argument as a seller and you do go to fruition here and end up going to an Amazon arbitration, Talk about what an Amazon seller should prepare themselves to go through, through that process. And, you know, everybody's going to be different, but in terms of how long it might take, but what should they expect to, to go on in that process? 
Yeah, so arbitration is the exclusive dispute resolution mechanism between Amazon and the seller. It is a substitute for court. So court, you know, you go and you file a lawsuit, whether it's state court, federal court, you file, you pay your filing fee and you're assigned a judge and you're kind of off to the races. Arbitration is similar but different at the same time. Arbitration is faster generally, you know, most court proceedings. You know, if you really, if you file a case and you end up going to trial, it, it could easily be three years, three, four years sometimes. Depending, you know, if you're in LA County, it can be six years. So that could take a while. Arbitration is generally pretty quick. You know, I would say a year probably tops and, and more often than not, it'll be quicker than that. So it's faster than a court proceeding, but it, it, it's significantly, I think, more expensive in that that cost essentially acts as a barrier to entry because very few disputes between Amazon and a seller actually warrant arbitration and even fewer sellers have the resources to actually do it. So, you know, if you look at a traditional court proceeding, you'll have theoretically unbiased judges and jurors. The arbitration process is, is a little bit different and it's kind of important to keep in the back of your mind that it's not necessarily designed to be fair. Number one, Amazon selects the service provider, which in this case is the American Arbitration Association. They are, you know, essentially do all the administrative work on any arbitration. The AAA then also assembles and distributes a panel of, of arbitrators. So when a case is initiated and the fee is paid, the AAA will then issue a list of prospective arbitrators to, to both sides and they have to rank those arbitrators and pick one. So there's bias built into that process. And then I think more importantly, the arbitrators themselves are incentivized to certainly rule in Amazon's favor, because if they don't, they may not get rehired. So right. the process is not is not exactly, you know, completely fair. The other thing you got to remember is really to have a, a case that's worthy of arbitration. You really do need to have sort of a perfect storm. You've got to have a situation where Amazon's really screwed up either acted unfairly or violated their own policies or, or some provision of business solutions agreement. Mm -hmm. Number two, you got to be able to prove it either through communications you've had with them, documents that you had with them or documents that you think you can get from them during the arbitration. There's got to be enough money in dispute where it actually makes sense for you to go through it. And of course, the most important is you, get, you have to have the resources to do it. Right. Arbitration generally only makes sense where there's Amazon's withholding money or, you know, they've destroyed your inventory. It's pretty rare that somebody will file arbitration to, like, get their account reinstated. Because, again, just the cost of doing that doesn't really make sense. So it, the, the, the cost component is, is massive. And, and you also have to remember that under the, the business solutions agreement, sellers are responsible for the filing fees that are paid to the AAA for the administrative you know, component of the case, mm -hmm. uh, they got to pay for their own attorney fees. The arbitrator fees will be split evenly with Amazon, but Amazon doesn't reimburse anything. So, you know, you'll, you could easily pay, you know, $10,000 in filing fees, and, you know, possibly $30,000 in legal fees. And you, you got to get $40,000 back just, just to break even. So you, you got to really sort of think about that as you're, as you're going through that the process like i said initial filing fees can cost thousands and thousands of dollars it's a sliding scale so the more money in dispute the higher the filing fees the arbitrators are, are really expensive as well i mean i think the lowest hourly rate i've seen is before 25 an hour and i've seen arbitrator arbitrators charge as high as 1200 an hour 1500 an hour and a lot of times you got to prepay mm. you know you're not you know if you're in court you're not paying the judge you're not paying the jury 
Um, in arbitration, you're paying the guy who's making the decisions a lot of money. You're prepaying. And they're pretty aggressive in their billing. The other thing to consider is in court proceedings when you actually kind of get to the discovery phase, that's pretty broad. You know, you can you can ask us you know, a lot of interrogatories, you can request a lot of documents, you can take as many depositions as as, as reasonably necessary. In arbitration, discovery is pretty limited. You know, the, the arbitrator will limit the number of questions you can ask. It'll they'll limit the number of documents you can request and generally they'll limit the number of depositions you can take. I had a big arbitration that was settled late last year involving about $650,000 in withheld funds and the arbitrator limited us to 15 interrogatories, like 10 production of document requests and one deposition capped at six hours. So you know it, it's it's condensed uh, and then the last thing i would say is in a, in a traditional court proceeding you can if you think that the, the judge is acting unfairly you can appeal a decision in arbitration there's no appeals the, 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 the decision from the arbitrator is final and so you can expect that amazon will engage in you know aggressive tactics they'll try to stonewall you as much as possible and you got to remember court records are public so judges, you know, use precedent as a basis for future decisions. Arbitration is private. So you can't go to, to an arbitrator and say, well, this other arbitrator did this in a similar case. That information is not available. Yeah. So the deck as a seller is kind of stacked against you. Got it. Got it. Awesome. Leo, if there's anybody out there, Amazon sellers, they need your help have some questions looking for some advice how can they how can they get in touch with you best way is always to email me leo at amazon suspension lawyer.com you can also find you know my contact information on the website which is amazon suspension lawyer.com and you know if someone's want to give me a call call my cell phone 619-373-6669 you know i do my best to be available for clients and prospective clients you know most of the day even on weekends so, you know, if somebody's got questions or need help, you know, I'm always a, an email or a call away. All right, Leo, interesting, interesting topic, interesting information from you. I really appreciate your time. Something a little bit new here on the Turnkey Podcast, talking about the legalities of Amazon. Hopefully, the people that are selling on Amazon, you can take from this some things maybe that you're not doing. Take a look at it, protect yourselves. And if it's Amazon selling something you're thinking about doing, hopefully you can listen to this and put yourself in a much more protected, safe position going forward. Again, do your, like anything in life, you know, do anything in business, do your preparation beforehand. Don't haste, don't, don't get spurious and cut corners. Know everything you're supposed to know. Review your terms of service. Know your seller code of conduct so you don't put yourself in a position from the early stages to what's potentially get into some sort of legal trouble and have to enlist Leo's help. I'm not trying to take business from you there, Leo. I'm just trying to help everybody out. But again, Leo, appreciate your, your time today and uh, we will talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Brad. Appreciate it.